0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff and I am a cellist.
1: And I'm Michael Ralph and I am a bassist.
0: Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we
1: spend our Friday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Dragon's Milk White from the New Holland Brewing Company. There is a lot at stake here.
1: (laughs) This is a bourbon barrel-aged white stout. So it is a stout,
0: but it doesn't look like one. No, not at all. It looks like what, um, it looks like watered down yellow. Although it's cloudy. And for that, I am excited. It's got a foamy head. I love regular old dragon's milk stout, so um, I'm a little nervous, but also very excited. The anticipation is killing me. I don't want to drink it, but I want to drink it. (laughs) We're gonna drink it, don't you worry. Okay. So what are we doing today, dude?
1: We'll read the story of one Kansas district that attempted to implement a new system for helping students. What teachers found is that a push for data and numbers seemed to push out all the other sources of information about student progress, undermining their ability to help those students. Later we see a nationwide bump in ADHD diagnoses for the youngest students who start school each year. This bump might be the result of a school age cutoff, rather than anything medical. And finally, we get some book recommendations and context on third culture kids in the peer review. Let's get started.
0: So first up, we are going to talk about a very common issue in education in the United States, and that is meeting the needs of diverse learners. As time continues, our classrooms become more diverse. That is happening everywhere. So uh, we have to as teachers, it's still our responsibility to teach our students even when our students are changing. So that's really complex. And there are a lot of uh, approaches out there regarding how to handle this. And one of them that is growing in popularity is the MTSS, uh, which is the multi-tiered support. System of supports. Multi-tiered system of supports. And it's kind of complicated because that MTSS uh, it kind of gets uh, different acronyms in different places, uh, but this paper illustrated a very particular school district's implementation of MTSS. The paper
1: is What If Only What Can Be Counted Will Count, a critical examination of making educational practice scientific. Uh, that was by uh, Nig, Nig, ah man, Inge. Inge? Inge is probably more correct, Ng is more likely to be correct. Ing Stoll, and Martinez. Um, published out of the University of Kansas and Indiana University in Bloomington, and that was published in Teachers College Record.
0: They were critical of this district's implementation. What was the primary critique? Uh, it feels a little early going to that. Well, what's what's interesting is that they didn't even know what the paper was. They didn't even know what the research was going to be about. Right, until it was just been there a while. It's like They're like anthropologists. Is there a story here? Yep, there is.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually, that's a really great comparison, I think, because that's exactly what happened is they, uh, they got some funding and they got some, um, some logistics squared away for a couple of the researchers, the two the two from University of Kansas, to go and spend extended periods of time in this uh, Western Kansas school district as that school district went about trying to implement this MTSS um, framework throughout the district. And basically their goal was just make lots of observations, collect data, collect evidence, collect interviews, and just see what kind of a story is going on. And so they spent a lot of time out there. From a design standpoint, that really resonates with me because that's often what you hear me say the first thing about if we're going to try and help a district uh, with transformation or with change is just spend time listening, spend time seeing what they're doing. And that's exactly what the researchers did in this case. They went out and they just listened. They just wanted to see what's going on. Uh, So they were out in the school district, and they were all over the place. They went to family math and literacy nights. They went to school celebrations. They went to extracurricular activities. They went to student performances and fundraisers. Uh, They went to administrative retreats. They went to professional development workshops. They were all over the place to just see all of the different happenings and goings on in this district over the course of a semester.
0: And they did find a story. They did find a story. They found that there was something interesting about this district's implementation of the MTSS, the multi-tiered system of support, and how power dynamics within the district result in very specific teacher behaviors. Uh, So let's review what MTSS is. Mm -hmm. In in a very basic summation, the MTSS involves frequent formative assessments and then additional additional supports being provided to specific students in response to those assessments. And, you know, reading that, that sounds great. I'm a big fan of that. That is, at its core, responsive, which I'm a big fan of. So how could this possibly go wrong?
1: Basically, you take a look at these identified data streams that are coming, which are specific to, uh, in this case, the district had specific assessments that they were asked to give that were generating these data outputs. And then students were then categorized into one of three categories. So if you're in category number one, then you don't, you don't need any support. You're doing fine with the current level of instruction, proceed. Um, if you're in the second category, you need a little bit of, of intervention. And if you're in the third category, you need heavy instructional intervention um, as defined by whatever the, whatever the instructional framework is for that student at that, in that discipline at that level. Uh that's, Oh man, a, how could that go wrong? There's so many moving parts to this.
0: Yeah, it's a complicated, it, it's complicated.
1: And that's because that's really what the, the paper is about is rot large, right? Across a, a, a complicated entity like a school district. What does it look like when we, when we have something that says these data streams will give us the answer for what we should be doing next? And so if at every K, if at every step, We have an algorithm or a heuristic that says this student gets this score. We do this thing. It's not that it gets
0: oversimplified, but what can go wrong? There's a lot. So as I'm reading through this, the first red flag that came to me was a quote where they said, this whole process is about moving kids out of intervention as fast as we can so we can get the scores we want. And that was my first big red flag. Because if I'm going to intervene for a student and supply supports and investment, I'm doing that because I want to promote their cognitive growth, their competency, and their confidence in their competency so that they can become autonomous, self-directed learners. That's what I want. And my goal is not to improve their scores. My goal is to use scores to help me decide what I need to do to promote competence and confidence in this student. So, the, my first flag was: we need to get them out of intervention so we can get the scores we want. And that uh, that quote came from one of
1: the state consultants that was brought in. That was their job was to be in charge of providing the training and overseeing the implementation of this MTSS system throughout the course of the district. And um, sadly, I think we're going to come back to several of their quotes throughout the course of implementation because, again and again, what it comes back to is minimizing the importance of anything that is not a part of this system. Uh, And I feel, I feel like I need some bongos playing behind me when I say you can't trust the system, but that kind of is what we're going to keep coming back to is it's a system that's big. And so there are going to be exceptions and there are going to be mistakes and there are going to be uh, errors that it makes. And if you build a system that can't tolerate people identifying and correcting for those mistakes, then those mistakes are gonna get worse and worse. You're you're gonna see some snowballing of those things as they continue to get worse. But again, another quote from the state consultant, when they asked about students who weren't making progress, about when they're asking about these interventions, not starting to see the, the gains that were being advertised, the consultant insisted, quotes, the tests are accurate. And so if we over-rely on this provided product, these provided tests, to the exclusion of all of the other sources of information that we could have on how students are doing and how teachers
0: are doing, then you're going to have some problems. Uh, Yeah. My second red flag was that their coaching, their professional development seemed to reduce teaching to... providing providing and responding to a test algorithm. I give them this test, they do this, so now I give them this intervention, they perform this way and now I do this intervention and then we do this and now they're caught up so we can move forward and I can give them what everybody else gets again. It's a a teaching through a flow chart schematic. One of the themes on this show that comes back from time to time as a consequence of uh, Shannon Ralph's comment is that we need to know our students. And test data is one way that we can learn about and know things about our students, but it is not the only way we can know about and learn things about our students. And test data can tell us about performance, but it doesn't necessarily begin to explain that performance, which those explanations are valuable. It is it is rich to know Uh, about what is going on in a student's life, about a student's background experience, about students' communications issues, about students' um, maybe learning disabilities and complications, knowing all of those things can enrich our understanding of students' performance on an assessment so that we can say, well, there are multiple explanations at play here, and that this number isn't actually today an accurate representation of this student's capacity. But if we stick to this prescribed system, which we have as a district have purchased, now that the student earned this, we're gonna have to put this student in this group and they're gonna have to read this book and they're gonna have to do this worksheet before they can retake this test because uh, they got this score today. That's ludicrous. Yeah. Because,
1: because scores have limitations, right? Like any measurement device, they're going to have biases, they're going to have shortcomings, they're going to have errors. And so um, the paper acknowledges early on, and I appreciate that uh, teachers and principals struggle to make sense of the deluge of information that's coming in. All of this data, all these streams of data, the graphs and the reports and the summary tables and the subcategories, all of this information is coming in and we're expected to make use of it. And it can be hard. I, I sympathize with that. It really can be hard because trying to make judgments from our our personal observations alone would also be a mistake. I understand that we need to have data streams. I I agree with that, I reinforce that position, that we need to have data streams to help us make our decisions. But just like we shouldn't be making decisions based only on our personal observations, we also should not be making decisions based only on those measurements because both of them have limitations. And so I can sympathize that if we have this this opportunity to purchase a product or to purchase a system of supports that gives us simple algorithms for processing easy to understand and interpret numbers, it can be tempting to say, great, now if we just cling tightly to the prescriptions of those numbers, everything will be fine. But those numbers still have limitations. In fact, if they are summary numbers, if they're simplified numbers, if they're generated from a heuristic, they probably have even more limitations and demand even greater judgment from the educators who are expected to be putting those numbers into practice. And so it is incumbent upon the consultants and it's incumbent upon the administrators and it's incumbent upon the support uh, coaches, the, the curriculum coordinators, the Everybody in the support team to insist that we all stop and think about the numbers that we're looking at so that each individual student gets the best decision made for them possible.
0: There's a vignette that kind of illustrates the tension between the prescribed numbers only approach and the more holistic using what you know approach. Uh, but it was, uh, it was attacked, pretty. Uh, caustically by the um, the consultant. There was a, a story where one of the instructional coaches had used data to group kids uh, for interventions in their school, but several teachers had concerned about the basis of those groupings. And the consultant scoffed saying, feelings? Am I hearing about feelings? And then the principal reinforced The students, I'm sorry, the staff's concerns, explaining that those concerns were based on careful classroom interactions and knowledge of students' personal circumstances as recent immigrants and English language learners. Last month, we just talked about third culture kids and how uh, giving them opportunity to interact with each other can support their growth, which is not part of the algorithm of this system. So our feeling which is really just observations about what's best to suit these kids based on what we know about them because it's our job to know our students is larger than this algorithm. Our brains are able to take in a lot more information about interpersonal dynamics and and personal narratives and other circumstances that we can use to make better decisions than just the rote number crunching. Now, it's true Feelings can lead to bias, but that happens when we ignore them and say that they don't matter or don't exist. When instead, if we accept that, okay, I'm feeling this way, why am I feeling this way? And is this something that I should influence, I should let influence my behavior? That is the narrative we should be having as professionals, accepting our senses and our feelings and our wider body of knowledge about students and then making a decision through ruminating over those ideas in for for their best interest.
1: And so I was really pleased in that, in that story to, to read about the administrators supporting their students. That was fantastic. And their that teachers. Made, yeah, that, that made me feel really good yeah. uh, to see all of that and even further disappointed in, in the consultants for, for undermining and undercutting the professionalism of the teachers in that district. So if I'm looking for shoulds, and I am, uh, there are several. Uh, one of them, and the first one that I want to point out, is uh, this this school district, uh, 75% of the students are students of color, uh, 70% of them are on free and reduced lunch, and over 50% of them are native speakers of a language other than English. Uh, there are several dozen other languages represented by native speakers in this school district. And so um, shifts like this, these MTSS-type, Um, implementation packages for changing how we support students, Um, they get implemented in schools that serve high percentages of economically disadvantaged students. And so being particularly mindful of some of the mistakes that can get made by implementing these sorts of large-scale change initiatives is critically important when you work with groups of students who are historically disadvantaged.
0: Especially groups of students that are further away from the teacher's familiarity and experience. Absolutely.
1: So, there are some shoulds, and the first one is the shoulds need to be more deeply considered in scenarios where we're working with groups of students who are historically disadvantaged, and that's usually the places where these kinds of scenarios are playing
0: out. That's should number one for me. Yeah, the complexity is that, you know, MTSS systems are proposed to meet the needs of diverse students. And I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, I'm so glad that there's only three kinds of students so that the systems can appropriately identify them, <laughs> treat them, and get them back to becoming the other kind of student we want them to be. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the sarcastic narrative that is proposed here. Look at how great we are at providing, you know, multiple supports. Uh, but It severely truncates the complexity of the human experience.
1: And so even the paper lays out scholars stress that no single model of school wide reform provides the best solution for school improvement. Uh, And then they cite that with like three or four different different papers right there in that quote. And so what's important to note is I actually I love that it's a relatively simple model if you're going to implement it across an entire school district, especially one of size. That makes sense. Only have a few categories so you can feel good about your initial placement of students in those categories. And then triage all of the mess that comes with that original attempts to place and help students. You're gonna have some students placed in categories where they're getting more help than they need and let the professionals who work directly with those students help resolve that misplacement and vice versa. Okay, I'm in a tier two and now I am the specific educator working with this student and I see that they actually need tier two plus they need Wednesdays, they need the tier three support also because I know that student specifically. So it totally makes sense to me that the large-scale system should be fairly simple because simplicity is great in a model. Yeah. But that's just your starting
0: point to then let your professionals do their jobs. Right. So one of the buzzwords used in this uh, by the consultants was the term fidelity, which really meant how, how well are you sticking to our script during the interventions? How well are you just toeing the line and getting it done based on on what we prescribe to you? And that I think is where the greatest problem is. Assessments can be done any number of ways. And if they wanna write assessments that help sort our kids into red, yellow, and and green, feel free. But what do you do once you know that information? Needs to be a teacher decision based on more information than a test score. Mm So fidelity is crazy because even if the treatment is scripted, the teacher is only ever going to be in control of one half of that script. I can only know my lines. The lines that the kids are going to give me when they are actually engaging in that intervention are not consistently predictable. Sometimes they are. Sometimes we may be familiar with a mistake that, oh, this kid's making this mistake, and I can see that he's doing that, and he's going to do it this way. But sometimes they are thinking things and practicing and applying things from way out of left field, and it's not part of the script, and this intervention isn't going to do it because it hasn't been implemented in this this system yet because they haven't seen this before. But you as a teacher can respond live to a situation. You can know your students. You can work it out, and you give that student what they need based on your professionalism. F- the, the fidelity buzzword, I think, was the biggest... If I, if I could say there was one problem, that I would remove that and say, here's a suggestion of things you could do to intervene. Consider that amongst other things that you know.
1: And the authors lay that out as one of, as one of their major findings is uh, fidelity was presented as uh, an, an end unto itself. Do the system correctly, and that is good because it is. And that's just false. That's just that's just isn't true, right? So if you if you're implementing the system and you're saying, well, we're sorting students over here, but they're not really getting the help they need, you're like, well, which students are you putting there? Like, well, we're making it up. Maybe you need to have a little more fidelity because it, that's not really working. But there was a story in there about how a couple of uh, faculty members had moved some students into a tier of support because they knew they were available resources. They're just. There was, a, there was a, a an intervention plan, and there was, I don't know, 12 seats, and there was only eight students in there. They're like, well, I know four more students who could benefit from it, so I'm going to move them over there. And they were reprimanded for that when they saw an opportunity to get some students some help that they knew was available, and so they went off script to make that help available to students that they knew in their professional judgment could benefit from it, but it wasn't fidelity, right? It wasn't, a, it wasn't fidelity and so they were, they were reprimanded for that and that's just a mistake. Fidelity is only as good as it helps you help students.
0: Yep. Oh my gosh. I have a, I have a postscript critique. I don't know, are we ready for that? Sure. Um, Something that sat uneasy with me while I was reading the entire, like through the, the beginning of the article, basically it was planted in the title. What if only what can be counted will count a critical examination of mag- making educational practices scientific? I got, I really hurt. I really hurt with the word scientific. Now, as, as I, when I finished it, I realized they put that scientific in quotations and they meant those quotations as air quotes. They, they didn't actually mean that this was scientific. I appreciated that the end. They said that uh, uh, proceeding uh, with narrow notions of science is a problem. It's, uh, it's this, you know, 1950s perceived sterility of, of science being done outside of a social context and that the scientific method is always uh, objective and it can't be flawed and that there's no influence culturally. These are just the results, just the facts, and we're going to proceed for it. That perception is the problem not that proceeding this way is in fact in any way actually representational of science and so they cleared that up at the end but i sat with it in my heart through the whole paper ready to to really like pound it out but they did they did they did clear it up for me at the end and so thank you for doing that you untied some knots in me as i was reading i yeah. appreciate that note at the end
1: and there it's i'm glad that you bring that up and maybe we can even close there as uh, they point out uh, in this transition to try to over quantify all of education, to make it scientific, to make it fit in this box that some people have called science when they are mistaken, that's not the case, actually maps on well to some of the ongoing trends in actual um, basic science and medical research. Uh, there was a study that came out not long ago of the quintessential sterile lab rat on which we do so many medical studies. There's, there are even pushes to get away from that because of some problems that are showing up in medical research from doing research on overly sterile medical rats. Yeah. We've got to put the we've got to do this study on real rats if we want this to mean anything in the real world, and so I'm going to post that. I'm going to post that study on the show link also because nice. I just I think that that's a, an excellent pairing of the over um, the overly sterile approach to trying to just use numbers is going to miss so much of what's important about what we do in education.
0: And this is coming from two teachers here that love numbers and we right? love using numbers to inform practice and we love reading research about numbers, reporting numbers. Uh, we just can't reduce ourselves or our students to those numbers
1: know your students Our second segment, we are flipping over to the New England Journal of Medicine because we're going to t- talk a little bit about um, some of the differences between our students and how they matter in a really concrete way for trying to figure out why students are behaving the way that they do. This was published last year, and it's titled Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and Month of School Enrollment. This is by Leighton, Barnett, Hicks, and Jenna. And this is about kindergartners? first graders. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think kindergarten is right. It's a four to seven-year-old-ish. Yeah. Um, but uh, whether or not they are kindergartners is part of the research question. So we got to get into that. Yes, we do. Uh, so part of the question is, um, how do we decide when students start um, their first year of public schooling? So uh, I have a couple of young daughters here at home now, and they're in, they're in daycare. But at some point, I'm going to get to decide whether or not to send them to kindergarten um, in a local public school. And there's usually an age there's usually an age cutoff range, right? Where if your birthday falls before, say, September first, and you are four years old, then you can you can come to kindergarten this year, or you should or you must come to kindergarten this year. And if your birthday falls after that date, then you will wait till next year or something else. So there's some cutoff to say whether or not you are a kindergartner this year or you're a kindergartner next year. And that cutoff date matters for the student well and if you're thinking well me as a 30 something year old if you're one year younger than me or one year older than me that's not really that big a deal at all but at that age that difference can be huge A difference of 12 months can be a really big difference developmentally. There are really important things happening as they develop all sorts of aspects of their personality and their ability to self-manage, their ability to control their own behaviors uh, and plan for future behavior. There's just all sorts of
0: things happening that at that age, 12 months is a really big difference. It's a really big deal. In addition to just raw biological neurological development in that brain.
1: So it's a big deal. And so for a, for a lot of situations, that's we have, to, we, we have to group students if we're going to put them in classes. And so to some degree, we have to be able to tolerate that. But there's this one situation where if we have behavior management is a problem, if we have our youngest students who are the least capable of managing their own behaviors because they are the least developed there's a chance that, that can be misinterpreted by folks who are looking at a group of students and may just assign to them all to be the same age as opposed to recognizing we have this broad spectrum of ages that are
0: meaningfully different from one another they're all first graders or they're all kindergartners as it were so some of these kindergartners are downright crazy or that's the argument
1: and teachers or er, teachers and parents are some of the folks who have the, uh, the first opportunity to start making observations and start pushing for diagnoses of things like ADHD. Uh, what is ADHD? Attention deficit
0: hyperactivity disorder is actually something that comes up a lot in school because a lot of the things that we do in school and a lot of the things that involve learning involve focus. And ADHD is typically associated with a challenge for the individual to focus the it looks like a lot of different things sometimes they quietly stare and just wander off in their mind to all kinds of different places sometimes they look around and are easily distracted by extra stimuli in the classroom and sometimes they can't seem to control their uh, own behavior and they're up and they're out and they're fidgety and they're tapping and they're they're highly mobile and full of motion in their regular life. So ADHD can look like a lot of things, but what binds them all together is this individual is challenged in their attempts to focus.
1: So as I sit here and listen to that description, I think to myself, that sounds a lot like my daughters because they're both two. And so they run around all the time. They're super fidgety. If we're even reading one four page book, one of them by the end of the book is probably on my head because they like to climb while they listen to books being read. Uh, So that manifests here where we've got some students who are as many as 12 months younger as some of their peers. They might be a little more fidgety. They might be a little less attentive because they are substantially younger than their peers in their cohort in this recent grouping in school. And so if I'm a teacher, it can be tempting to say this is a group of kindergartners these handful of kindergartners are the most fidgety and should be perhaps screened or considered for possible ADHD diagnosis when in fact, I may not realize this same group of kindergartners are the youngest five in my room. So we've
0: kind of laid it all out here, but let's get to the actual study. They used a huge database of an insurance an insurance database to gain access to the re- to records of what was it uh, four hundred thousand students. Yeah. I'm sorry. As well as medication that they had been, um, prescribed and other, uh, doctors visits and diagnoses. So they, they're using insurance data and guess what insurance, they don't like making mistakes about who they're paying money for. So I am accepting this with a pretty high degree of fidelity as it were. So they didn't find these students, and then they looked at the states that those students went to school, and they kind of inferred, they assumed that everybody played ball, and that uh, if, if they were not uh, five by the cutoff date, they didn't go to school that year. And if they were by five by the cutoff date, they did. There might be some fudging of that, but good enough for me, at least. Uh, uh, and they laid out in
1: their limitations that the handful of reasons they know that there might be errors in those assumptions all would have skewed their data towards less of a finding.
0: Well, they found that this is happening. There is a higher diagnosis of ADHD in younger kindergartners than older kindergartners. Yeah.
1: So, if, if of the students born in August, about 85 in 10,000 were diagnosed. And of the students born in September, about 64 in 10,000 were diagnosed. So, that's an increase of about 34% for the younger students. In month over month. And that's a bigger deal when you consider the tremendous effort that the study uh, that the study authors put in to reduce their bias and their probability of finding false positives because they looked for false positives everywhere to confirm that they had an appropriate sensitivity of their study. They checked lots of other month-to-month pairings. They checked lots of other diagnoses. They checked lots of other states that did not have the September 1st cutoff date for going to school.
0: And interestingly, in those states, there were no difference in ADHD diagnoses between August and September. Which, think about it. If, you can let, if you're letting four-year-olds into your kindergarten as a regular course, then the behavior of kindergartners is a wider basket. So the teacher themselves are used to four-year-olds acting like four-year-olds and five-year-olds acting like five-year-olds because their classroom is a mix of both of those all the time. So the younger kids don't stand out because they're already part of the normalized group yeah
1: so in all of these cases they didn't find significant differences they only found a significant difference at this age in these states at this month pairing for this diagnosis which i think is a particularly powerful signal to say right here, we have something. I think that's really useful. Uh, one of the pieces that I think might mean something is I said they checked multiple ages. So when the, these groups of students were younger and had not had a chance to enter into the school system yet, there was not a difference in diagnosis. In these students, yeah. there was no difference until they were in the school system.
0: A lot of uh, education research, a lot of um, psychology research is so broad that you you read it you digest it you kick back and say well how how might this influence my classroom whereas this one is so specific parents if you have a kid who was born in august and in their first (laughs) year of school the teacher says they have adhd you might want to sit on that a little year you might want to sit on that Mm -hmm. that's i mean i i'm I'm even going to go ahead and say you should sit on that
1: (laughs) well and i i think the 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 proof of concept is relevant to me, and I and I haven't gotten to all of the meanings that it could have yet, because the difference between um, between somebody who is just barely fourteen and somebody who has uh, is fifteen and a quarter, I I need to do some reading to see what that looks like, but that might have meaningful differences because that's an important developmental window in age, and that might have real meaningful consequences for some of my student behaviors or maybe some of my student choice-making patterns that I need to think about. That might might actually matter to some of my students in some of that developmental window as they go from being their adolescence to being some proto-form of what they will be as adults. But you know what? If I teach an elective, I have students that are several years apart from each other. And yes, that's, that's really visible to me. And that's something that I'm more cognizant of. I know that I have a junior and a freshman, and I'm not going to treat them as equivalent. But might I be subject to some subtle biases of what I expect them to be able to do that I need to manage in myself? Yeah,
0: I think that there might be. What this really does is it harkens back to uh, developmental learning theory that the capacities of our students and the what we can expect them to be able to do is going to be tied to their literal neurological development and their opportunities to practice using those new neurological structures. So a six-year-old has had an extra year with socialization and self-management that a five-year-old does not have. And if we say people who can't socialize and don't have self management have ADHD, and we start giving them drugs for something that they're just just because they're young, well, I mean, but.
1: I know for a thing they don't have. That's wrong. It's, <laughs> it's bad practice. Yeah. <laughs> that at least. It's at least bad practice. <laughs> well, and it has real consequences. The authors point out in their discussion uh, that this pairs with other evidence that uh, the youngest members of a school cohort uh, don't perform as well as the older members of that cohort in academic and athletic measures. Fewer of them attend college and they're more likely to end up in the juvenile criminal justice system. Oh my
0: gosh. Oh, I want to know more about that because that sounds like so much like cost of comparisons and, and fixed mindset. Like these kids in my class can do this. I can't do this. I must be inferior. I must be stupid. I'm not able to, and then they seek other ways to self define, and that's and that's a complication of of developmental learning theory because they're making a comparison with individuals who've got you know one sixth of a more developed brain. I mean, we're talking about one five years of existence versus six years of existence. That's a big chunk of time in these little bodies.
1: So these differences and comparisons really matter. So, so we have to manage it when we see somebody that says they can't, or even if we're doing well enough to say they can't yet, trying to judge about when when yet should come, should they be able to today or should they be able to next month or should they be able to next year, sometimes we need to look more closely at who this student is yeah. in order to try and make those kinds of uh, recommendations and judgments as educators.
0: And it just it just struck me one thing you shouldn't do is say, why can't you be more like X student? Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Because if they have, I mean, if if their age or neurological development actually is different, then there are like really good biological reasons why they can't be like that student. And so you as the teacher should change in in, in order to help the students as opposed to expecting the students to be different.
1: We're in this together. We're gonna do some peer review because we heard back from an author of last month's segment on TCKs. Uh, Jung Min, the author of our article on Third Culture Kids, responded to us uh, after having listened to the segment, and she provided a couple of recommendations for books that would be really great follow-up resources in case any of you listeners wanted to learn more about uh, Third Culture Kids and what it means to be a Third Culture Kid in our world. Uh, The first one was a reference that we made on our episode. Um, She reinforced that Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among Worlds uh, by Pollock in 2009 uh, was a good read, but then also suggested talking about global migration implications for language teaching by Catalano in 2016 is also something worth reading. Uh, so thank you, Jungmin, for those two references. And we really appreciate you getting back to us um, with those materials for anyone who wants to learn more. Uh, that's particularly useful because a couple of, of listeners uh, have provided some stories for us that I wanted to just reinforce. That was basically like, "Yeah, this is this is a big deal where I work," because he works at an international school, uh, and it's it's a huge piece of their onboarding process. And it's just they're very intentional about doing a lot of the kinds of conversations uh, that you and I talked about in the segment. Um, They're very intentional about it, where he works at an international school. And that's consistent with some of the other stories I've heard from other folks uh, who have said that they also are um, third culture kids or have a similar background in themselves. And so I thought it was worth reinforcing that in our segment last month on TCKs, I, I was very much kind of a, I felt like Dorothy in that I was in this new space It was a new idea that I hadn't really ever thought about before. I I have lived all of my life in Kansas. I I don't have, I'm not very well traveled, at least in places to have lived. And so it was a really new idea to think about traveling or growing up in multiple different cultures. But the fact that it was new to me and the fact that it's new to you doesn't change the fact that there are folks, especially folks in the places where there are many TCKs, who are really cognizant of this and doing a lot of this work already. And I just thought it was worth underlining because I didn't feel like it came up in our segment last month that they are doing this work over there. Um, This is some of the listeners, some of the listeners, uh, David, uh, David Knufke pointed out to us, he works at international school and he's a listener. He pointed out that someone they are, they are very intentional about at his international school in their onboarding process for new faculty, talking about the experiences of their children as they, as they move over there. And of course, all the experiences of their students at the schools. They're just really intentional about building uh, the supports for these students. And I I appreciated hearing that to remind myself that even though it's new to me, it's not new to a lot of the folks who are actually in the places where this work gets done.
0: Yeah, I don't have much. I know. I lived in Texas and, and then I moved to Nebraska and it felt different but that's not the same.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. That particular phenomenon where, especially, uh, knowing the identities that I hold, you know, I've got this, I've got this position of privilege, um, just where I am and where I work and the, the, the role that I get to have, at least for now, um the privilege that I have, I can say, oh my gosh, look at this new thing. And that can be that can be disrespectful to people to whom it's not a new thing, right? There are people who've devoted careers to these topics. So the fact that I'm just now learning about it doesn't make it new. And so uh I just I I wanted to underline that because I fall victim to that sometimes.
0: When you're committed to growth you have to check your ego out the door and there are gonna be things that are you are a novice about that other people Uh, are experienced about and it's okay for you to be excited about the things that you are Mm -hmm. that you're a novice about um and also know that you're a novice about it so both of those things be excited and know that there are other people out there that are crushing this and you're just opening your eyes empower each other So how was the beer?
1: Uh, the beer is is good. It is actually I found it to drink lighter, like as light as it looks. It didn't drink like a stout, which I kind of expected.
0: Yeah, um, I am not impressed. <laughs> really, you know what? This is just dragon's milk for people who don't like what I like. Is it? How is it dragon's milk? I could not find uh, the aspect
1: because it's barrel aged. Barrel aged. It is a stout. Um, They, um, but I didn't detect any of the flavors that I associate with dragon's
0: milk. Um, oak, vanilla, cocoa, bourbon. I think I do get a hint of the vanilla, but it's not nearly as bold as the actual original stout.
1: But there, but it's in there, it's in there. So, I so I I yield. You you, do, you have done that thing, New Holland, and I am just a novice. Which after three years you'd think I'd be getting better at this, but uh, I'm not getting feedback. I suppose uh, I need to be getting feedback on my taste. Yeah, ends. we don't
0: know how to. Yeah, we we are so novice. We don't know how to improve.
1: Thanks for tuning in this month and this year because this will close us out. We are taping just a few days before New Year's. We really look forward to starting again in January with all of you. Remember, send us any uh, recommendations or requests you may have. We want to read the things that matter to all of you, uh, or comment and let us know how we're doing, what we may have missed. Uh, or what you can add to the conversation
0: as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.